We are continuing through church history, obviously. Maybe. I don't know what's going on with my clicker thingy. But um, we're, we're going through the Enlightenment. And I'm trying to get my clicker to work, and I don't understand why it's not. Oh, it's working just fine. He's not doing the right dance. Oh, um, it's lost its, uh, I get it now. It's going, I don't know. Now I know. Oh, come on, you do too know it. Yeah, and it just made the, I, I recognize that sound. There we go. All right, first things first. We're going to talk about James Usher, uh, who figured out just exactly how old the planet is, which is helpful, because we need to know this. First off, he's, he's the son of a Protestant father and a Catholic mother in Ireland. So he's going to be a little conflicted on, on some things. He entered into the college at 13, ordained as a priest in the extremely Calvinist Church of Ireland at the age of 21. So, this guy's a mover and a shaker. Um, he, in fact, helped write the Articles of Religion for the Church, which was kind of based on the Articles of Religion for the Church of England at the time. The, the sort of Calvinist Church of England that the, that the Roundheads had. This is the extremely Calvinist Church of Ireland, and trying to move it away from Catholicism. He, in fact, he wrote... The religion of the Papists, Catholicism, is superstitious and idolatrous. Their faith and doctrine erroneous and heretical. Their church, in respect of both, is apostatical. It's an apostate church. To give them, therefore, any kind of toleration, to consent that they may freely exercise their religion, profess their faith and doctrine, is a grievous sin. So, obviously, he's leaning a little bit more toward dad and away from mom on this, right? hates the Catholics. In fact, he wrote this really, actually, very well thought through, very well uh, researched book, A Discourse on the Religion, anciently professed by the Irish, saying, hey, did you know that the ancient Irish Catholics weren't very Roman Catholic? They were actually more Protestant about things. And I'm like, dude, we were all over that. You know, when we're looking at this, we're, we're saying, yeah, they're really not. I didn't even know about this book when we went through that. And I was looking at all these things. After looking at this book online, I'm like, yeah, I could have used this a couple of centuries ago. But he, he, but he went back to all these primary sources, and he's like, look at what they actually said and the stuff that they differed with Rome about. They were actually more like we are than like Roman Catholic Church. So it was, it was actually very interesting. Anyway, so age of 44, he's archbishop over all of Ireland. He's in charge of the entire church. And he was outside of Ireland in 1641 when the Irish uprising came up. Remember when we talked about this? And there's this bloody rebellion in the streets, and 10,000 Ulstermen get killed, uh, thousands others across Ireland as, as uh, the Irish Confederacy takes over and says we're going to be Catholic, we're, we're kicking out all the English, we're killing all the Protestants. He was visiting England at the time, so he's like, I can't go back. You know, if I go back, they'll kill me. So um, while he was at Oxford and in exile, he continued to study, and he wrote something called 
the annals of the Old Testament deduced from the first origins of the world. Actually, that's just this. The, 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 the title keeps going on down the page. This is back when they had nice, long titles for books. So he wrote this book about how the Old Testament flies and, 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 and how old the, the Bible, or how old the, uh, the earth is. His argument is this. Yeah. Using the Bible, using astronomy, using logic, Earth was created 6 p.m. October 2nd, 4004 B.C. The Bible is extremely clear about this. So you can go home now. And it's just, I don't even need... Well, I'll explain how. He took the begats, you know, all those... And Buford begat Bucky and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, from the Old Testament. And he figured out... And, and since a lot of those say, when he was 47 years old, he had... Touch, touch. And he figured out how many years it was from Adam to the first kings, and then used... Uh, kingless from other uh, other area nations to figure out different events, and he'd be like, "Well, wait, this happened in the third year of King Darius, and Darius became king here." And he, so he figured out, "Okay, how does all this stuff that we see going on in, in the Old Testament relate to stuff that we know the dates for elsewhere?" And so he worked backwards from 4 BC. Why? What was? Why was 4 BC when he thought Jesus was probably born? Anybody remember? Herod died in 4 BC. So that was the latest date that Jesus reasonably could have been born, right? Because Herod was the king when Jesus was born. Right. So he's like, 4, 5 BC is probably when Jesus was born. That's the latest date. So he worked backwards from that, and he took two, two factors into consideration. He's like, first off, Dennis the Dwarf was off by four years. And we know that. Remember Dennis the Dwarf, way back in 525, figured out the whole Anno Domini thing, the AD thing? And he was off by four years. So he was short four years. Oh, you had to go there. You had to go there. You with your... You with your... You with your, your, your edgy demographic Dutch humor. Anyway. So yes, Dennis the Dwarf was short by four years. Anyway, and the Bible clearly states that the, that the world was created in or for six days, right? Back in Genesis 1. So, if you add that to the fact that from 2 Peter that a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day for the Lord, right? Then clearly the world will only exist for a total of 6,000 years. Wait, will exist or has existed? Will exist. Because I just said... The world was created for six days. And you all said yes, right? I said in or for six days, and you all nodded. Okay. So you agree with them that the world was created to exist for, four, for six days, and since a day is a thousand years and a thousand years is a, is a day, the world was created to exist for, for 6,000 years total. Clearly, right? Well, the word like doesn't mean the same. Yeah, it, it's, is that what, what Peter was getting at? The day equals thousand years? Or what's he getting at in that verse, by the way? A big difference. <laughs> yeah. What, what, how would you phrase that when, when Peter says, to the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is but a day. How would you describe what Peter is getting at? That? Yeah, because remember, it's in this context of, he's not slow like you would think slow. He's not thinking the way you guys are thinking with, with time. 
created. Exactly. The Hebrew means a time. Exactly. But no, it means a day. And no, what's interesting is, that's a very good point. I wasn't going to bring this up, but this, since we're doing this, if, if day, by the way, has to equal a thousand, then does that suggest God took 6,000 years to create the earth? So the earth would actually be like 12,000 years, all total, which screws the whole thing up. But again, he's going with preconceptions that fit the, the theory, okay? Anyway, the first half of the existence of the world was before Solomon's temple. And the second half of the existence of the world is after Solomon's temple. Because Solomon's temple was erected in 1004 BC. You know, not necessarily, and to which Usher says, shut up. So it's 4004 to 1004 BC, that's 3,000 years. And then there's another 3,000 years for the existence of the world. And that's a perfect millennium before 4, 000, or 4 BC when Jesus was born. So it's the first half of the earth was before the temple. And then there's a perfect 1,000 years and then Jesus, which is the first third of the last half. This is great. This, is, this works out perfectly. Right? So Adam had to have been created in 4004 BC. It's very clear from Scripture. And thus, the world is going to have to end in 1996. So he's the one who started this. No, but he jumped on that particular bandwagon. <laughs> well, somewhere around 1996, all right, the world's going to, going to end. Now, which day in 4004 BC? It had to have been autumn, because that's when the Jews start their new year, is in autumn. So it's got to be in autumn, and it just makes sense that it would be on the equinox. What's the equinox, the vernal equinox? That would be the solstice. Nope. That would be the solstice. That's when it's over the equator. Yeah, so this is the exact opposite of that. This is when day and night are equal. This is the, like the vernal and the autumnal equinox. So he says the autumnal equinox was on Wednesday, October 26th, 4004 BC. In fact, it was on Sunday. That's not the point. This works out well for him because he says, ah, if it were on Wednesday, October 26th, that's the fourth day of creation. And what happened on the fourth day of creation according to the Bible? Yeah, that's when day and night was created. Day and night was created on the equinox. Yeah, that's when day yeah, that's when Yeah, that's when day and night were created. Do not confuse perfectly good facts with actual facts. So, Wednesday was Sunday, so he didn't even calculate the day, right? No. But he, he came close. Um, Kepler came close. Kepler was like, no, I think it's Tuesday is when it happened. So he was closer, but it was actually, we got computer models together. No, it was actually Sunday. Anyway, but since creation would have happened on that first day of the week, obviously because it was the first day, which would have been a Sunday, the first day, Wednesday would have been the fourth day, that's when... Days were created, therefore that would be perfect for that to be the actual equinox. Thus, the first Sabbath would have been Saturday. It just all works out beautifully. But since technically in Judaism, the day begins the evening before, the day began at 6 p.m. at dusk, Saturday, October 22nd, 4004 B.C. And this is important because... Um... Well, I mean, you could argue, oh, you got to publish or perish. You know, um, <laughs> everybody's got to have something to, to do. Um, 
but also to, to be able to show the historicity of Scripture, to be able to show that this is not just myth, this is talking about something actually happened, to be able to put a date into it. I mean, if, if you could figure out exactly what day Jesus was actually born, that's kind of nifty. I mean, when we when we did some math and tried to figure out what year he was born that, in that like, second, third uh, Sunday school class that we had in the series, we were all like, oh, it's actually kind of interesting. You know? um, and, 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 and or figuring out, well, which Passover did he probably die on? And, and we realized that there is a Passover 33 years after 4 B.C. that where the, 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 the Sabbath lands on the Passover Sabbath, where there was, um, uh, what do you call it? Sun goes black. Uh, eclipse. There's an eclipse that would have been seen over Jerusalem in the middle of the afternoon. And on, that, on that Friday, you go, oh, that just gives me chills. You know, so that's what Usher's trying to, to do with this kind of thing. So if you've ever heard the argument, the earth is only, uh, is only, 4,000 years old, 6,000 years old, and it starts at 4,004 BC. This is where all that started. Not a horrible thing, not a, just, but it's just an interesting thing that there's a lot of presuppositions that went into that. And he nailed like the king list stuff. In fact, he was the, the first one to really put all this together, how all of these interlock. And he's like, the, the reigns of Julius Caesar, uh, 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 Alexander the Great, you're like, He's the one that put all together all those chronologies. This guy was huge into collecting original manuscripts and stuff. So um, a lot of historians look back at Usher and go, thank you. You, know, <laughs> you really have to figure out what was going on in the, in the, in the Middle East. Um, unfortunately, obviously, there are some, as, as some of you have pointed out, some presuppositions to some of the things that he came up with, some, some axes that he was specifically trying to grind. And... Another problem is that even the rabbis tend to argue a little bit about the begats. Is this really an unbroken line from Adam to the kings? Can you, can you really nail that stuff down? Um, some of the begats uh, may have indicated grandchildren or even great-grandchildren. The word technically can just mean bring forth. It can mean um, you literally have given birth to somebody. It can mean my wife gave birth to somebody. It can mean this person came from my line. It's we produced this, this kid. And so to say this person was obviously this person's father because they say Floyd begat Bucky, you know, not necessarily. Bucky might have come from Floyd's line. I'm not saying that's the way it always is. It's just as Randy was getting at, like with, with, uh, with the word day, in Hebrew, some of the words have a little bit more fluid definitions of things. They're used a little bit more broadly. Um, and, and then some of the rabbis even debate like the, the, the actual years. No, he was, he was 47. No, he was 49. Yes? Also, in like early Genesis, don't they say um, it wasn't more, it wasn't exactly historical, it was more, um, how do you put this? Poetic? Poetic, philosophical, like they were captured 400 years. Um, Saul, David, Solomon, all 40 years. Lots of 40 years, 400 years. And it was more poetic than actual. Um, I will answer that by saying it depends on how you want to read that. Because, um, yes, I mean, it's amazing how many things have a 4 and a 0 in front of them with, with that sort of stuff. Um, so 40 or 400, that sort of thing becomes kind of a, an, an image of long period of time. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights. 
Uh, Jesus was in the, uh, the wilderness for 40 days. Moses was 40 years old when this happened. 40 years he did this, then 40 years he did that. They were in the wilderness for 40 years. Um, having said that, um, is, is that, oh, it was 36, it was 42, it was around 40. Is this a, which, and even so, I'd be fine with that because then it becomes kind of a precision thing. Uh, or is it that God's like, no, I'm trying to make a point here. We're doing this in 40 blocks. And so I'm, I'm making it 40 so that you go back and go, oh, you know, uh, is it, is it um, there were 12 disciples, there were 12 tribes of Israel. Is that a coincidence? Is that on purpose? Is it, was it about 12? Yeah. So it, it, yes, it's poetic, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's not the actual number of years or the actual years of, of, of ages and things. There's 13 years. Good point. So lost their place. Yeah. Well, and there's Paul, so anyway. <laughs> Jesus was making a point when he said that Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days. Three days. days. Yes. So, I mean, so somebody... At the very least, I will say, I would be uncomfortable with people if, if we said something like, well, we don't know how long they were in captivity. I'm at, the, I'm at the very least, I'm comfortable with going somewhere around 400 years. Since the Bible, and, 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 and again, even in Hebrew, like, they have no number for 1,000. The number is heap. You know, so it's like so 4,000. It's like one, two, three, four heaps of people. Did they say... One, two, three, four, five, nine, 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 a thousand. No, they didn't count either. The word thousand was heaps. So some of their numbers are not crazy accurate with, with that sort of thing, but it's not a matter of error. It's a matter of precision. So uh, anyway, where was I going with all that? Oh, just, just that the idea of, of counting up all the ages, although I will say some of these... I mean, there, some of these are, are, are numerically fairly, I mean, it's not just 900, it's like 943, you know, that's sort of, it's, they're trying to be extremely precise. And especially with like some of those first couple of generations. Um, Methuselah, if you look, if you count up the numbers of, of ages and things like that, and again, as we've talked before, Methuselah was, uh, uh, died the year of the flood. This was the last righteous guy outside of Moses, or Moses, outside of Noah's immediate family. And so there are times where you look at this and you go, no, that pretty much lines up number for number. There's a reason why this is right. I, I, I'm fine with that. It says you start getting... Oh, don't even. All right. Did, so did Methuselah die in the flood? Or as I like to think of it, Methuselah died and God said, Jen, that's it. You are it. You are the last family left. Anyway. Um, speaking of rabbis, uh, debating different things, rabbis kicked Baruch Spinoza out of the synagogue in 1656. Has anybody ever heard of Baruch Spinoza? He's a philosopher. Actually, he's a Dutch, Spanish, Portuguese Jew, which I have to explain oh, yeah, <laughs> a little bit. Spinoza. <laughs> I know Spinoza. There you go. Well, actually, this puts this in context a little bit better. Um, but, uh, do you remember 1492, which Spain remembered as the day, uh, the year that all the Jews and Muslims were finally kicked out of Spain, right? That was what they thought 1492 was going to be remembered for. 
And you remember in 1496, when Portugal did the same thing. They're like, okay, we're, we're kicking them out or forcing them to convert. In fact, we'd kind of prefer to force them to convert. They have to go out on specific ships, they have to go out on a specific day, and then we're going to have a lot of missionaries standing between them and the ships. So, a lot of them were going to convert. A lot of them ended up going to North Africa, but some of them actually stayed in Europe saying, I see myself as European, I've invested myself here, I can't take any gold or any property with me on the ships if I leave. I, I either stay in Portugal and Spain and convert to Christianity, or I'm crazy poor and in North Africa as a Jew. So, Spinoza's family uh, had lived in Spain and got kicked out of Spain in 1492 and moved to Portugal. Because they're like, well, that's, that's an easy move. So four years later, they were forced to convert to Christianity because they're like, I'm not going to give up everything we own. We'll play Christian for a couple hundred years. Uh, they ultimately moved to the Netherlands in 1615, and they became practicing Jews again because they'd always been Jews. They just, like most converts under those kind of circumstances, just were nominal converts. So he grew up in a situation where religion is complicated. Right? He's very conflicted. You go to church. You go to a Christian church. You don't mean it. Right? You tell people you're Christian. You don't mean it. Because you know you're Jews, though you don't do anything about that. Right? Completely unlike, say, the religious situation in America today, where people show up at Christmas and Easter and say, yes, I'm Christian. I don't live like it. Or, I'm Jewish. Do you ever go to synagogue? <laughs> no. But I think we do, uh, what's the, oh, it's the thing with the horseradish, the Seder? Yeah, we do that. Yeah. So there's a lot of Jews that just sit there and go, well, we, we, do, we do Hanukkah, we do, we do the Seder, I go to temple once a year, whatever. Yeah. So, he grew up a little conflicted. He trained to become a rabbi, and then decided he, that really wasn't his thing. But he trained under a particularly liberal rabbi. And then to learn Latin, he learned it under another particularly liberal kind of God. So he, he kept being pushed more and more and more to think very outside the box on a, on a lot of stuff. So he's beginning to question this Jewish understanding of, of God, and even questioning things like, did Moses actually write the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch? But I'm going to ask here, where does the Bible say that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible? How many of you have heard that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible? Where do we get that from? Tradition. Rabbinic tradition. There is, there is a line in Deuteronomy 31, 24 through 26, where it talks about Moses wrote the book of the law. And the book of the law was put, or he put all the laws into a book, and the book of the law was put with the ark, the covenant. So is that referring to the Pentateuch? Or is that referring to like that section from Deuteronomy, or what exactly is that in reference to? We don't we don't really know. Rabbinic tradition says Moses wrote the whole five books of, of, of the of the Torah. We don't we don't know. Which all this brought him to an interesting point. He's like, you know what? Stop just going on tradition. Stop going on what makes you feel good. What does the pardon me? Exactly. Spinoza said, no, 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 no. What does the Bible actually say? If you say you're going to believe this, what does it actually say? Stop isogeting. What is isogeting, remember? 
reading into it, right? Reading into the text. He's like, stop reading into the text, exegete, read from the text. What is it actually saying? You Jews and Christians are doing this all wrong because you are reading all of your traditions back into it, and all it is is a mirror to what you wanted it to say instead of what it actually says. Arguably so. Arguably so. But he's just like, well, obviously, especially with that, well, in six days means four six days, and that means four six six thousand years. You just go, you are so reading into this. Again, maybe maybe the world is six thousand years old. It's just Usher had some issues with that. Um, so you sit there and you go, Spinoza, you rock, man. This is awesome. This is cool. He's like, yes, read what the Bible actually says. You go, cool. And what what conclusion does that bring you to? He's like, oh, that it's utter crap. Read what the Bible is actually saying. And once you read what it's actually saying. Yeah, I don't believe that stuff. You know, well, you're, you're half right. Okay, but at least, at least I, I, I'm glad that you're trying to get to what this is actually saying. So he develops his own understanding of God, his own understanding of philosophy. He says, no, God is infinite. He's separate. He's impersonal. He's unreachable. You can't reach him. You can't talk to him. He's not, he's not like that. Again, wouldn't you argue that majority of Americans who, who believe in God would say that's essentially what God is like. Savage war story is the majority of theists in America would say, yes, God is separate, impersonal, impersonal and unreachable. I can't, I can't have a relationship with God. I don't even know what God is. He's just, I don't know, man upstairs. Uh, priests may be able to talk to God because they have some sort of glowy, holy thing going that I don't get. Maybe God only speaks Latin. I don't know. Or you've got to be like some kind of holy person to do it. Or um, it's like magic. Or God's just kind of up there doing stuff. God is, the deists would say he, he's, the earth is this big wind-up toy that he started and then let go. Most people would have this basic understanding. So this, this evangelical thing that we can appreciate where we say, God, God wants to be in relationship with you. He actually talks to you, and you listen to him, and you communicate to him, and he listens to you. That's kind of a unique perspective. And, and sometimes we, we take it for granted, because we go, well, but I see that all over the place in Scripture, and I, I try for that in my prayer life. I, I engage with God. I want to have a relationship with him. I want to communicate with him. There are a number of people that will sit there and go, I've never communicated with God. I'll, I'll send him email prayers. But the idea of having a conversation with God, the idea of knowing his voice, the idea of actually feeling like I know him with a personality, with, with how he's probably going to react, that's alien. So this is kind of, Spinoza becomes kind of the poster child for a lot of the way people think nowadays. Uh, and any, at any given point, I bet you anybody in this room has sat there and gone, I feel kind of distant from God, or I, I don't know if I know what his voice sounds like, or what have you. But I encourage you, spend quality time with him. We have, we've been doing this in, in youth group the last several weeks, is talking about how do you hear God? How do you develop a relationship with God? Anyway, so Spinoza says God is essentially synonymous with nature. Nature, God, essentially the same thing. Technically, you could say God makes a tree, nature produces a tree. Both of them are created by forces or systems that operate beyond our understanding, 
but follow basic and consistent systems as to how to do it. Right? They're both bigger than us. We don't know how it works. It's doing its own thing. It's beyond us. So whether you call it nature with a capital N or God with a capital G, it's not like you can talk to nature and it's going to listen to you. It's not like you can talk to God and he's going to listen to you. And it's not like you can stop nature from being nature. It's not like you can stop God from being God. So I don't care whether you call him God or nature. Communed or communicated? Okay. All right. I've communed with nature where I felt like I, 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 I feel like I'm part of this. I'm feeling like I'm part of this larger whole. I, I've smelled the grass. The idea that I've talked to the grass and it's gone, no, I totally agree with you. Um, that I don't, that I don't do. Um, I don't talk to trees. Pocahontas besides, you know, um, <laughs> I, I don't talk to trees and they talk back, which is obviously, you're not talking about trees talking back. And if you are, there's medications for that. But, um, <laughs> but that's what he would say is, is you, you can't, you can commune with a tree, you can't communicate with a tree, i.e. in a conversation. You can commune with the cosmos, but you can't communicate with God. That's, but, I, but you're right. I've been in, 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 in very poignant moments with, with nature, but I, I would say no more so than what he's talking about here, where you just go, wow, I'm, big of a large, I'm part of a bigger, larger whole. Um, so to Spinoza, he's like, okay, everything is just natural. Um, nothing exists that extends, except for that, that extends from the physical, natural environment. It is nature. Everything is nature. Nature is everything. Everything stems from nature. It's easy to understand, which, of course, puts him in opposition to Descartes, right? Because Descartes like, man, I don't know if nothing exists. i got to start with intellect and build my way up to nature and say, I think this is around here. I just had a, an interesting conversation with a philosopher this, this, uh, this week where we discussed the nature of matter. Does matter exist? And so we had an interesting debate sitting there over use. I was going to say over coffee. He was drinking coffee. I had a slushy. So we were talking about, does matter exist, and how do you gauge whether or not matter exists? Yes? Rene. I Rene, with one E at the end. Wendy's middle name has two E's in the end, because that's how you know if it's a girl or a boy, just like fiance. Anyway, uh, where was it going? I don't know. So, he says, nothing truly exists, and nothing can exist without being completely explainable. Because everything stems from nature, so everything can be explained by natural processes. We don't maybe know the, the, the complete explanation for some things because we can never know everything completely. You can't know every infinite bit of everything. Even Heisenberg's like, well, you can't know both where a particle is and how fast it's moving at the same time. So, yeah, you can't know everything. But he's like, everything can be explained. Everything can be explained. So, a lot of people say, okay, Spinoza, you're a pantheist. Or an atheist. What's a pantheist? Um, everything is part of God. Everything is God. Everything is part of God. So, atheist. Theist means you believe in God. Atheist means not. I believe in God. Not. You know. Pantheist. God. Everything. Pan meaning everything. So, pantheist. Everything is God. This is God. The trees are God. Everything is God. Everything's part of God. Get it. He's like, oh, I'm not a pantheist. I'm not an atheist. I just, I have a higher view of God than all of you. That's all. No, deeper, richer understanding. 
knowledge and understanding comes in three levels. First level is rough and emotional. It's just rough hewn. You're not thinking rationally, you're thinking with your passions, so you're bounced around by every straight thought because you're just emoting. Go on Facebook. Lowest level of knowledge. No, uh, he done me wrong. He opened the door for you. Oh, I hate him. It's like, think it through. Right. He still considered them to be a form of thought. Emotions are thought. So he didn't make a distinction between, well, you're being emotional versus you're being rational. He's like, no, emotions are thought. It's just rough, ragged, mangled thought. It's thought that's just mangled by your flesh. You're not thinking it through. You're just passioning all over the place. So again, he found him at odds with Descartes, who said, wait a minute, the basis of all knowledge is pure intellectual thought. If you get down to the basis of everything, it's pure intellect. He's like, no, no, the basis of everything is pure passion. You've got to get over this. So the second level is this combination of reason and passion, of reason and emotion. This is where you go, I know what I feel, but I also know what is intellectually true, and I can choose to do other than what I feel. I am not just a brute beast. So he'd say, um, uh, everything selfless, everything noble, all the stuff where you run into the burning building to save the, the kid, or it, that comes from the second level. Because you understand things at an intellectual level, but you also feel things at a passionate level. So it's muddied, but you're trying to do things good. Yeah, yeah. This is what makes people go to work. This is good. This is why you're a street sweeper. Yeah, we like this. Um, the third level, the highest level, is when you abandon emotionalism altogether. You simply understand everything, nature, i.e. God, on, a, on an objective intellectual level. Um, so it, being the highest level, somebody just did that. Uh, this, is the, this is the level where people are, are actually connecting with the divine. Because this is the highest level of knowledge, and God is the highest thing, so... This is where you can connect with God by abandoning your emotions. No, no, this is pure. Yeah. No, it's objective. There's no deception. Yeah. What do you think I might have a problem with this? Because I mean, I loves me my intellect, but what? Why do you think I might have a problem with this? You can't separate them. No, you're never going to be objective ever. You're always going to be subjective. The trick isn't removing your subjectivities. The trick is removing as many subjectivities as you can and being aware of all the ones that you still have so that you can counterbalance them. That's how you get through things. Besides, I would tend to say, if you're asking me, this level is the highest level. These levels are going off the, the rails. These levels are going off into the grass, either to the left or to the right, where you can actually use every part of your cognitive ability, your passion and your intellect, what you know and what the motivational feelings that God give you, that's the highest level of understanding of things, where you can understand it in a fully orbed sense. And you've heard me preach about that. It's more honest. And it's more honest, because you're aware of, you're saying, I have a passion in this area. I'm not going to pretend. I was going to say something about Spock. There are whole episodes that talk about Spock really did have emotions. I mean, he just tried to suppress them. They're forever, forever going, you really do. You talk a good objectivity. Okay. But he says, by definition, all that emotion, all that relationalism, all that passionate religion is, by definition, crude, base, because it's the lowest level, right? It's you wanting to feel God on an emotional level. 
So when you do rituals that make you feel good, when you try to talk about being personal with God, you are totally missing it. Because that's not what religion, true religion, is about. Um, genuine religion is when you try, instead of trying to, to connect with God personally or something like that, you just intellectually cogitate on the ways that nature actually works. You think about how God has set things in motion. You think about how nature works. Both those sentences are the same. That's religion. Now, this isn't a choice. Because there is no such thing as free choice. There's no such thing as free will. Everything you believe, everything you do, everything you think, all that kind of stuff, is caused by outside actions, outside stimuli. And all of those are decided by outside factors, which are decided by outside factors ad infinitum, to infinity. And there's such a complexity of factors affecting everything and cross-affecting everything, it gives the illusion of freedom. Because there's just an infinite number of things cross-affecting everything else. And so it feels like you're making your own choices. It feels like the guy next to you made his own choices. It feels like that, that, that belief just blew that way for no reason. In some ways, chaos theory sits here and goes, yep. There is no chaos. There is no random anything. It's an, an, a nearly infinite system of cause and effect. But there's nothing random about it. dice roll. There's nothing random about dice roll and chaos theory. So, you don't strive to come to this third level. Because there is no free will. It just is the highest level. And the people who are thinking the clearest are the ones at this level. Those are the people that you can, that you can trust. So that's basically his take on it. Given a purely natural understanding of human thought, that whole idea of good and evil is just silly talk. Good is anything that accomplishes something useful in the natural world. Evil is the opposite or even just the lack. Anything that mangles your opportunity to do something good. If, if it prevents you from doing it, it prevents you from seeing it, it does the opposite, that's evil. Something makes you feel good, it makes, makes things better, that's good. Something makes you not feel good or prevents you from feeling good, that's evil. That makes total sense. So let me ask, how many Spinozans do you run into on a daily basis out there? Oh, yeah, like, it's crazy popular now, whether they realize, I know! Now think of Jesus. Uh, but, but if God exists at all, He's completely impersonal and separate from my personal life. Good and evil are just labels we can slap on things to make, to make life feel better or worse. Do I feel good? Do I not feel good? The idea of morality is something beyond us, beyond just our natures. That's just crazy talk. Morality is simply that sense that we have as a culture, any given culture, that a set of actions brings useful results, and so that's a good thing. So what is moral in America might be different from what's moral in Uganda. Morality isn't bigger than us. Morality is us-generated. Everything is explainable by natural science, and anything that doesn't appear to be explainable is just not being understood correctly. And it's being believed at this base emotional level. Thus, religious people are obviously emotional anti-intellectuals. They're anti-science, right? Because they're believing things that science, i.e. God, i.e. nature, aren't explaining. So I'm going to ask again, how many Spinozans do you run into on a daily basis? This is a wonderful snapshot of what we as a culture tend to believe. 
And if you find yourself going, well, that ain't right, you know, try to understand where people are coming from and how they arrive at this. Once you start with this idea of God being this impersonal force, or not even existing, this is the sort of stuff you start falling into. So, so a lot of people look at him and go, well, he's kind of the father of humanism in, in a modern sort of way, of looking at things from a completely naturalistic, humanistic perspective. And he looks like such a nice guy. Well, and it's not like anything that he's saying that is illogical. Nope. I mean, it's total sense. He has a clear logic to it. It's just that he starts off wrong. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the synopsis of, of most bad arguments, is you sit there and you go, um, it's not necessarily that you have no logic in it. It's you start with the wrong at the wrong place, which is why you. There you go. You can make that argument. Ironically, started by saying, "Don't actually read the thing." You know exactly where other people, what you know, Jean Calvin or, or Menno Simons going, "Have you?" Or King Josiah going, "Have you actually read this thing?" You know, all those guys went, "Let's do this right." He reads it, goes, "Yeah, no, that's bunk." So, 1656, the synagogue leaders go, you're a heretic, get out of here. Nobody can communicate with him, nobody can shelter him, nobody can do business with him. Just, he's out. He's, he's no longer part of the Jewish community. But he didn't move into the Christian community, which is what you would normally expect at that time. If I can't be Jewish, I'll, you know, how do I do this? Instead, he just said, I'm, I'm going to remain a Jew, but I'm just not going to go to synagogue. I'm going to remain a Jew, but I'm not going to do religious things. There's a professor at Johns Hopkins. Uh, I, I, I followed, uh, I was actually looking at Wikipedia, and I ran across this quote that he had. So I followed it to a dissertation that he wrote on him. But it was interesting. He argued he's actually the first secular Jew. The idea of saying, I'm a Jew simply because I was born Jewish. I don't do anything. It's not about what I believe. It's not about any relationship that I have with God. I'm a Jew because I said I'm a Jew. And then I'm going to go to my... Yep, and that's what he's, he's like. He's a product prototype for all these modern secular Jews. A lot of Jews that a lot of the Jews that I know, it's like they don't do anything with it. They're like, I'm Jewish. I do the occasional seder. We used to do Hanukkah when we remembered it. Uh, what was your favorite thing about Hanukkah? What do you really remember? <laughs> Dreidel. It's like secular Jew, not Jew because I I have a, I'm part of the people of God kind of thing. It totally does. It totally does. Because you see that kind of, the, the idea of going, can you be Jewish without going to synagogue? My family did that for a century and a half. Yeah, I can totally do that. All right. Because everything we do is affected by things that have happened to us. We, I would argue we are not the sum total of our experiences, but everything we do is affected by the sum total of our experiences. And the secular Christian. Absolutely. Yeah, Christian. Yep. Before I am. Yep, exactly. What were you going to say? Okay. All right, 1664, because we've had New Amsterdam for a little while, right? This poor little blue thing surrounded by red over here. And you just go, that's eh, not standing indefinitely, because we don't have a New Amsterdam as one of our states, right? So, last time we talked about the Anglo-Dutch War, just a little bit. That was between 1652-1654. Cromwell and Parliament went, we just can't afford to do this anymore. We're going to make friends. Everything's going to be cool, right? 1654, everything's cool. England, totally at peace with the Dutch Republic. Everything's going great between them. And even after Charles II takes power, Charles II has family over in the Netherlands. He's got family in the Dutch Republic. No, he's great. Yeah, everything's wonderful. And that's when the English warships sailed into Amsterdam, New Amsterdam's harbor and said, you're English now. 
To which they go, wait, what? This is like Pearl Harbor. It's like, wait, we've been cool for a decade. And all of a sudden, you're just going, yep, we're forcibly taking New Amsterdam. No provocation whatsoever, except that we, we want it. So we're taking it. Again, Charles II is the king. Family in the Dutch Republic. Didn't care at all. Just wanted to grow the empire and wanted to, I want it. I want more colonies. It's, I don't like that blue right between the reds. I just, I don't like it. And his little brother James, the Duke of York, who's also the Lord High Admiral of the Navy, is like, we've got the ships for it. We're not at war with anybody right now. I say we take it. There's nobody over there but Dutch people. They got no Dutch army there. They got no Dutch navy there. If we sail warships over there, it's ours. It's just sitting there. That's not very nice. <laughs> <laughs> nope. So they kill very many people? Or? No, no. But it's one of those things where it's pacification by force. If if you if you if if um, if a hundred armed gunmen showed up this morning and said, "We're in charge now." They may not have to shoot anybody. You know, everybody else might go, oh, what are you thinking of doing? You know, it's just like, <laughs> sure, okay. Um, you know, like, there's so much, I mean, there's, there's so much distance in time yeah. between the, the Dutch colony and the, the Netherlands mm -hmm. that, I mean, there is no equal aggression to be had in the opposite direction because there's so much time and distance. And then on top of that, the red colonies and the blue colony might be getting along just fine because there's so much time and distance yeah. between. It, increasingly, it's becoming, I don't care whether we're New, new Amsterdam or New Vienna or whatever, it doesn't really change my daily life. But also, yeah, if you're blockading the ports, how long is it until the Dutch Republic actually finds out that you took New Amsterdam? So, um, they got no, no support from the Dutch. They're forced to capitulate. June of 1665, New Amsterdam is officially taken over by England and named New York after the Duke of York, the Lord High Admiral of the Navy, who said, yeah, we can go take it. So I used to think that New York was New York, like named after York, like New Amsterdam was named after Amsterdam, York, England. I thought that's New, it's named after James, the Duke of York. It's his place. The Second Anglo-Dutch War. They're like, we're totally going to war with you. And England's like, yeah, we figured. But we, we've got New Amsterdam. It's New York now. There's not a heck of a lot you can do. We've got warships over there. It's surrounded by English people and English troops. Knock yourselves out. Let's go to war. Do you really think you're taking it back? By the way, Third Anglo-Dutch War. They do. We're like, 37 minutes. It becomes New Orange. Yeah, that's the other thing. The Good luck with that. Yeah. You have to sail through the channel or go around the upper part of Scotland. Right. Which, if you remember what happened they with the, that. yeah, do you remember what happened with the uh, with the Spanish when they tried that with the whole Spanish Armada? They just got they pounded on the entire way, and then and then yeah, very few of them ever got back. So the Dutch are kind of like. Uh, nuts. Whatever's whatever's Dutch for nuts. Anyway, it would have three A's in it in a row. Anyway, <laughs> 1665. You call, you did a dwarf joke earlier. 
before Nikki still said. She is. And it's Mother's Day. That's right. <laughs> anyway, 1665. Two Charles II's grow in power in 1665. And we've talked about Charles II in England, right? And he's on a roll. He's taking colonies. He's taking names. He's doing great. He's also exerting his power over Parliament. Remember back in 1644, Parliament said, we're going to reform things. We're going to reform the Church of England. Charles II's like, no, no, no. We're, re we're re-Catholicizing everything. So, got to read the Apocrypha as part of the liturgy, got to do genuflection, got to do the whole schmear again. We're going to go back to that. Tons more. In fact, they came up with something called the Claritin Code, which is actually a series of, of different acts that prohibit any worship other than Church of England worship. You can only be Church of England, and Church of England must be very Catholic in its structure, uh, even more so than Charles I had done. And it's punishing any non-conforming cler clergy. Um, you can't come within five miles of, uh, of uh, a parish where you have been kicked out if you don't conform to the clerical code. So you're constantly having to move around England until you finally get kicked out of England. It's, in effect, exiling you from England. So, pretty intense. I mean, Henry wanted the Church of England to not, I mean, to be what he wanted Catholicism to be great. Yeah, everybody's been trying to morph the poor Church of England around. Right, so then what is Charles, I mean, is Charles Holding to that in some way, or is he is he completely decatholicizing it? You know, he's like, okay, you claim Anglican, just you have, you know, this, this, and this. Yeah, for not, the tax deduction. No, I, I mean it's 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 high Anglican, very Catholic-ish, but it's not trying to reconnect with Rome. Yeah. Uh, this is why we have separation of church and state. Well, exactly, and this is also why, in part. When we think of Church of England today, we think of Anglicanism. I mean, they sit, they sit there and they go, I mean, the, the, the running joke is that they, they're like, our text today is something I read in Forbes. You know, it's like, I'm just, thank you for the three of you old ladies who are sitting here today, and we will sing hymns that were written 400 years ago. We'll sing them very quietly, and then I will bring some interesting comments that I heard on the radio, and then we'll hug and go home. But we'll hug with just kind of a, hello, and then you can leave. But I mean, just nothing to it. There's no meat to it at all, because how many times has it been reinvented and then reinvented and then reinvented and then reinvented? Um, oh, and, and Charles also is putting up all, all sorts of filigree back in the church buildings, because one of the things, that, and I didn't even mention it before when we were talking about Cromwell, is that uh, he's like, well, we can either raise taxes to buy cannon and pay our troops, but our people are poor as it is. How about we take down all the brass and gold that are in these church buildings for rich people that should have never been put into church buildings in the first place. Melt down the brass to make cannons, melt down the gold to, to pay our troops. Which, depending on which side of the political and theological fence you are, or aesthetic fence you are, is either a brilliant, wonderful move, or horrifically bad. You know, all the artists sit there and go, you just took down beautiful brass statues and melted them down to make cannons. All the high church people said, you just defaced churches. All the all the roundheads, all the Puritans go, thank God that you take down that ostentation, you've got a billion dollars sitting there wrapped around a box where people go worship God, and people are starving in the streets outside of it. They can't eat the gold, but if we take the gold out of the box where it should have never been put in the first place, these people can eat. Thank you for honoring Jesus Christ. So which is it? 
black hat or white hat? It really depends on how you look at it, right? Because he's a complicated guy. Charles II's like, well, we need to put all that stuff back in. Tax the people out the wazoo to pay for it so that we can put all the brass and gold back in the buildings. Thank you. Good guy or bad guy? Depends on who you ask. Anyway, but I said both Charles II's, right? Two Charles II's. Carlos II, Charles II of Spain is crowned here in 1665. He's the product of the Habsburgs. <laughs> Notice the growing lip and chin, right? Extreme inbreeding has produced Charles II. Came to the throne at age three. Couldn't speak until he was four, couldn't walk until he was eight. Never could chew very well, never could speak very well. Um, couldn't walk very well. The only exercise he got was shooting things. He loved killing things. Loved shooting stuff. So he couldn't really get out and about too much so that they would, they would bring all sorts of game onto like the palace grounds and he would shoot them and kick them. So um, he was essentially allowed to grow up as a feral child, just running around through the palace, stumbling around through the palaces. They didn't, his half-brother came at one point to visit him and, and, and held his nose and said, Please throw him in a tub. Please do something. They're like, well, he never bathes. He's like, can you at least brush his hair? Can you at least put a brush through the guy's hair? Could you do something? Please wash him down. I can't stay in the same room with him. Bear in mind, this is at a time when everything smells bad, right? I mean, everywhere you go smells horrible. Brother couldn't stay, half brother couldn't stay in the same room with him. So at age 18, he is married off to Marie Louise of Orleans who was very pretty and very smart and a very nice person, apparently stayed totally loyal and faithful to Carlos in a very unhappy marriage. Um, but it seems to be about the only person that ever tried to actually help him to be a better person. He also got the opportunity to uh, preside in an auto de fe. Remember what, when we talked a little bit about these, auto de fe, which means more or less an act of faith. Uh, it's kind of a corruption in Spanish. But it's the, the Spanish Inquisition's trial or public act of penance where the accused is publicly charged and sentenced. And so uh, at this one, they brought out 120 prisoners who were charged with heresy and witchcraft. And so he had them, uh, he had them tortured and 21 of them burned at the stake. And he just loved it. Because, I mean, this is, again, this is, this is the thing he enjoys doing. This is where he gets some, some enjoyment out. Welcome to the Enlightenment, right? This is, this is Europe at the time. He's the end of the Habsburg dynasty, by the way, in Spain, because he's completely sterile, completely impotent. There are no more Habsburgs in Spain. You're, you're, you're done seeing the lip and, and, and the chin of Spanish royalty. Yes? That would have been his mom, who may very well have poisoned his wife because she was getting too powerful. But his wife died under dubious circumstances. He lived till he was 39. Um, I've got this, if you've ever been in my house, I've got this series of, of, of books on the history of, of philosophy and thought um, by Will and Ariel Durant that I, I dearly love. And Will Durant has this great line where he's talking about he was always on the edge of death. He was always like, he's just terribly frail, terribly sick, and astounded Europe by not dying. It's like, how on earth were you king for 36 years? years. You can't even chew. You, you, you're constantly in your deathbed. How did you last this long? Nobody knows. 
back in London. Let's, let's wind this up. Back in London, the, hit, the city is hit in 1665 with an outbreak of plague. Because the plague is still around. Um, it's not the first time that they've been hit. It's not even the first time they've been hit in this century. 30,000 people died in London in the plague in 1603. 35,000 in 1625. 10,000 in 1636. And if you're doing the math, that's 75,000 people in 33 years dying of plague in the major plagues. There's other little plagues in the about all this kind of stuff. But this is, this is kind of an important outbreak for a couple of different reasons. First off, they lost 100,000 people in a year. 100,000 people died of plague in a year. That's 25% of the remaining population of London dying from plague in a single year. That's fairly intense. Or if you want to put it another way, 42% of the population died of plague in the span of one lifetime, from 1603 to 1665. 62 years, 42% of the population, almost half the population of London dead from plague. How does that affect you, you living in London? How do you perceive life expectancy? How do you perceive life if you know that in the span of your life, probably half the people are going to die from plague? Not, not to mention all the people who died because they were beaten to death in the streets by thugs or all the people that died because they just got old and died. Specifically, 42% from plague. At the plague's height, 7,000 people were dying a day. Daniel Defoe even wrote a book about it called A Journal of, a Pl of the Plague Year, um, where he just said, to certain that they died by heaps and were buried by heaps, that is to say, without account. They're buried in mass graves. But you have to understand, London was not very nice. When we think of London, you think London is not a nice place. People regularly threw their sewage, their garbage out the windows on a daily basis, which is why you've got to make sure anytime you're walking under an open window that you're paying attention to what's going on above you. Part of why people wore, carried parasols and, and umbrellas and things is not just to keep the sun off of them. And every day, the, the, the city employed people who would go and rake all the gunk up and throw it against the city wall. At least most of the gunk up. But every time you're walking through the streets, you're walking not just through horse droppings and things, but people refuse. People poopy and, and urine and garbage and whatever. Um, they also buried their dead wherever they could, even within city limits. Mass graves, especially during the, the plague, were common in city limits. Um, for instance... Guy named Pastor House thought it was no problem to bury more than 12,000 corpses under the floorboards of the Baptist Church in 18, starting in 1822. People paid him a couple shillings to bury their dead, and they never asked what he did with them. He just took them down the basement, had them stacked up like cordwood in the basement. Eventually he decided, wait, I'm wasting space on this stupid stuff like caskets. Just pile the bodies on top of each other. 12,000 bodies. Church members could never understand why everything smelled so bad, especially in the summer. They never understood why everybody was sick all the time. I need to go to church and pray more about this. Every time I do, I just get home and I'm sick. How come we leave meat out for any length of time at all in church and it's always bad? It just it, it rots immediately. Why is that? The next owners of the building just put in an extra layer of flooring and made a dance hall. And even build it as dance on top of the dead. And it was extremely popular. This is the way London was. Even today, Londoners occasionally fall into sinkholes filled with corpses. Oh, like, oh yeah. Like in the, yeah, in the 30s, 
there was a there, there were a bunch of girls that were playing a tennis match on, on grass, and the grass gave way, and all the girls went tumbling into a mass grave filled with corpses. London. Now, there's a there's a great sci-fi movie. One of my favorite sci-fi movies of all time was uh, a '60s horror movie called um, uh, Five Million Years to Earth, or Quatermass in the Pit. But but they're digging through the underground, and they run across something, and they're like. Ah, oh, is it more? Is it another grave? Is that what it is? Did we run into it? It's like, well, yes, but not of what you're thinking. And, and so it's, but you go, yeah, they're all over this. You, you're digging through the underground, you find corpses all over the place. They also threw so many bodies into the Thames that they basically thought of the Thames as its own cemetery. They referred to it as a cemetery. They're like, oh, corpses are forever popping up. Uh, this is Father Thames introducing his offspring to the fair city of London, cholera, and all these other different things. You go, yeah, the worst thing you could possibly do is fall into the Thames. I fell into the Illinois River, and I smelled like Illinois River for like two days. I'm like, oh, this is horrible. Fall into the Thames, you're probably going to die. I mean, not, not even kidding. I mean, you fall into the Thames, you're probably going to die. It's, it's toast. So between all the sewage and the garbage in the streets, the dead bodies everywhere, the piles of refuse heaped against the city walls, it's a breeding ground for rats, right? And rats are a breeding ground for... Well, the, the, the fleas and thus the plague, right. So you get bubonic plague all over the place. Secondly, this is the last major plague in Europe. So everybody remembers this one because they're like, okay, this is the last big outbreak. Third, right after this, you get this huge fire, the Great Fire of London, the very next year. That's really great news. Yeah, we'll talk about that real quick. Only like six to eight people died in the fire. It was incredibly, a lot of people got hurt. 80,000 people lost their homes. Uh, especially all the people who lived on the, on the London Bridge. This is what London Bridge used to look like. Filled with tenement housing. Wooden tenement housing all stacked up next to each other. Once this started on fire, yeah, it's not going out. Ever. All those are gone, gone, right? So it's huge. Everybody in London could see this huge conflagration across the Thames of this. So the hero of the day was the Duke of York. The Duke of York who created press gangs and said, we're going to be firemen, we're going to pull down houses, we're going to make fire breaks. We're going to prevent the whole city from going under. And he did. Arguably saved the whole city by, by saying, I'm in charge. I'm taking military charge of this. We're stopping this before, before anything horrible, horrible, horrible happens. Everybody kind of loved James after this. He's like the hero. Arguably, this saved a lot of lives. Why? Yeah. You kill all the rats, burn up all the garbage, get rid of all the worst houses, all the, all the tenement houses. To, it took another 150 years for London to get really, really, really horrible after this. But yeah, let's say that. So whatever, whatever else you want to say about it, the fire, there's no more plague after the fire. That was it. So it was actually pretty cool. Next week, Jakob Spener launches the Pietist movement, which is kind of a big, huge thing. And a big, huge thing for the background of this particular church. So let's end with that. Dear Lord, thank you so much. I thank you for all the different ways that you show us from where we've come to understand where we are. And I pray that you help us to appreciate your heart, appreciate your perspective, appreciate what you would have for us. Help us to look at ourselves and see in what ways we, we eisegete, in what ways we, we follow more of our culture than we do of your word. Help us, Lord, to, to know which ways you want us to go and why. We give all this to you and pray that you be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.
Oh, thank you guys. You, you're the, your, com your comments and things are the ones that actually make this 